Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Are you ready to talk Padres baseball? We've got you covered. Now is the right time to bring back Padres Social Hour as we await the start of the regular season. Friar Faithful, get ready to sit back, relax, and join the conversation. Now, coming to you from everyone's homes around San Diego and beyond, it's Padres Social Hour with your host, Jesse Agler. Hey, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Padres Social Hour on this last day of June 2020. I got some really good news for you. Uh, by my math, never trustworthy, but by my math, uh, today is the halfway point of 2020. And I feel like that's a good thing. Let's get this year moving. Let's get to 2021. Uh, hopefully things will be a lot better across the board uh, for everybody. Uh, but we got a lot to talk about today and very, very, very happy to be joined by Bob Scanlon and AJ Casavell to have all those conversations. Gentlemen, right out of the chute, we got action. The freeze on transactions was lifted. And what do you know? A.J. Preller and the Padres were the first to jump in, uh, acquiring infielder Jorge Mateo from the Oakland Athletics this afternoon. Um, A.J., I'll start with you. You're the reporter. You wrote about this guy a few minutes ago on Padres.com. Here's what I know. Uh, He's from the Dominican Republic. He's 25 years old. He has extraordinary speed. That's it. That's all I got. What, what, what other blanks can you fill in for me? Well, he's an extraordinary <laughs> base stealer, too. And speed doesn't always just equate to ba- base stealing. I think he had 82 steals in the 20, 2015 season, maybe. Yeah. Uh, he's had over 50 a couple times. And so that says a lot. That tells you that, that, he's, that he's the type of guy that can get on base. And if you, need, if you need him to steal a bag, he can do it. Obviously, in the big league, it's, it's a little different. But uh, I think there's a, I mean, he's out of options. And so there's a spot on the roster for him, presuming that he earns it in spring training. And then with, with rosters expanding to 30 guys, uh, at least at the start, there's a pretty clear spot for him to maybe be that guy that if you in extra innings want to pinch run, starting with a guy on second base, it makes some sense. Uh, I've talked to a couple people. They've been pretty adamant about this is not just a 2020 acquisition. This is about the future, and they have six years of control with a pretty enticing prospect and uh, a guy who can play second base, shortstop, in the outfield. Uh, it's it, it's an interesting acquisition, and I think, like you said, it's it, it's only fitting that the freeze is lifted and AJ Preller strikes pretty pretty soon after. Couple things, uh, scans. First of all, I saw him take Eric Yardley deep, former Padre. No, not nice. <laughs> um, but also. 
Uh, Bob, I guess the, the interesting thing is, I don't know how many times in Peoria, back in the normal days, you and I had conversations privately and on our respective broadcasts about the second base situation uh, being up in the air, and now perhaps even more so, add another name to the mix. Yeah, it's interesting, Jesse, because the Padres did not put Brian Dozier on their list of 60 guys that they were going to have. And so that was sort of an eye opener thinking that, well, I guess the decision has been made that Jerks and Profar will be the second baseman. Greg Garcia will also be battling for playing time there. But it looks like we've got another player back in the mix. Now, obviously, uh, Mateo has some more versatility. He can play in the outfield and he can play multiple positions on the infield. But I, I think the key thing here also is not just the versatility, but as you guys already referenced, the speed. I mean, let's let's not deny it. It's going to be a different game here over the next 60 games. Everything's going to be a little bit more intense. You're going to have a larger roster to work with. And I think we've talked about it multiple times where, who knows, we may see situations where they actually want the, the pinch runner type thing, especially if we have extra inning situations where they put a runner on second base. Having a speed demon like Mateo might make a difference in those types of games. So it's an interesting acquisition for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, it really is. And as you mentioned, key thing, guys, out of options. So it's kind of big leagues or bust for him in terms of staying on the roster. Is not somebody they're going to uh, put away on the minor league roster this year. And, and, of course, there isn't really a minor league roster this year. We'll talk more about that coming up in a little bit. So Jorge Mateo acquired today from the Oakland Athletics, uh, primarily a second baseman, signed initially with the Yankees, traded to the A's in the Sunny Gray deal, and now a Padre for a player to be named later. It's just kind of nice having like a normal baseball transaction to talk about, and like Preller's going to Prell. I saw also, and, and this is great, Casabell, uh, a couple people dug up a tweet from 2015, where apparently when, when the Padres were in talks of trading Craig Kimbrell, Mateo's name was coming up. Uh, and he was deemed untouchable at the time. And now here we are five years later. <laughs> yeah, AJ Preller has a tendency to get those guys that that have been deemed untouchable once they're not untouchable. And then maybe they pan out in San Diego. Maybe they don't. But it's a worthwhile investment. Obviously, we don't know what the, what the exact return is yet, given that uh, it's a player to be named later. Um, but it, it, it seems like a guy worth taking a chance on. And like I said, it, it's been reiterated to me that this is not a 2020 move, that things are different in 2020, and so we went out and got this guy. That certainly played into it, but the Padres have wanted him, and they view him as potentially six years of a utility guy who could be pretty useful on the bases, defensively. And so this isn't, this isn't primarily about 2020, but I just keep thinking of – Let's say let's say Kirby Yates pitches a scoreless top of the tenth inning, and you get to start with a guy on second base in the bottom of the tenth. Well, pinch runner on second base, Mateo's the guy, and you're asking one of the elite base runners to advance 180 feet to win you a ball game. Yeah, I agree with you on that, AJ, 100. percent But the other thing that's interesting, Jesse, you brought it up. This was the name that was brought up a while ago, and how many times have we seen the Padres acquire a player, and then when you go back and you do the history? AJ's been following this guy for a while. You know, it seems as though he gets enthralled with the player and he continues to track him. And at some point when the timing is right, he goes after and gets that guy. So that's not the first time that we've seen this happen. And a lot of times his hunches turn out to be right. A lot of time it just comes down to timing. So there you go. Jorge Mateo, a Padre, again, primarily a second baseman. He's played some shortstop, as you see here. Uh, also, even a little bit of outfield at the AAA level. Great speed, great base runner. And uh, yeah, we'll see. Terrence Gore with the Royals in that postseason. Uh, Eric Hosmer got to see up close what speed could do, kind of have the opportunities to change some games. And who knows, maybe with uh, the DH, perhaps in the long-term future, uh, you know, bench players' roles become a little bit different. You can specialize a little bit more. Uh, Bob, that kind of goes to what AJ was saying about this not being just a move about 2020. You don't have to worry about having, you know, three or four guys available to pinch hit every night if you're going to have a DH. 
Exactly. And that, that's what's going to be the interesting thing apart. Look, as much as I, I hate to see the DH going to the National League, there will be some more movements, especially in this shortened 60 game season where everything's going to be a little bit more intense, uh, where we may be able to see a little bit more of this finagling, especially with the larger rosters. So you know, it's, it's a different brand of baseball and it's going to be fun to see how the managers deal with it how rosters are constructed and we're getting a little taste right now of what the Padres may be leaning towards in terms of trying to add some of those additional pieces. All right, there you go. Seven consecutive minutes talking about a trade. I don't think we've done that since like last uh, <laughs> July, I guess. And it was very enjoyable. So thank you both uh, for being a part of that and hope everybody enjoyed that conversation. We return now to our regularly scheduled 2020 programming uh, where we talk about all the nuttiness of this season. Uh, yesterday, we heard about a small handful of players mm-hmm. opting out of the 2020 season uh, in Washington, Ryan Zimmerman and Joe Ross, uh, Mike Leak doing so for the Diamondbacks. And then later last night, Ian Desmond, also opting out uh, with an Instagram post that if you haven't seen it or you're not on Instagram, I I cannot more strongly recommend you find the full text. I I think it's a little bit too long for us to just read here and show the entire thing. Um, AJ, this was one of the most thoughtful and deep things I've ever seen. I was going to say out of a baseball player, but out of a professional athlete, out of a celebrity, you know, people who generally don't feel comfortable putting themselves out there because of what could be at risk. Uh, He laid it all out and almost mentioned as an afterthought at the end of it. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to play. I'm opting out here in 2020. I I thought this was a pretty remarkable thing that Ian Desmond uh, did yesterday. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I think uh, I'll, I'll like you, I will defer to his telling of it and what he has to say. I would encourage everyone to, to go out there and check out his Instagram and read what he had to say. He had a lot of things to say about, about the state of, the world and the state of baseball and kind of, and, and some of it feels like criticism or critique of baseball, but it's also really important stuff. If we want to get this great game accessible to more people, which I think should be all of our goal. Uh, it, I mean, baseball, we, we all love baseball so much that limiting access to it, to people for whatever reason, whether it be economic or whether it be where they're from or, or different issues with race or skin color or whatever, more people playing baseball makes the sport healthier on so many different levels. And Ian Desmond had a lot of good things to say on that. I would, I, he could say it better than I ever could. Yeah, it was an amazing piece. Uh, and I, I agree with both of you guys. It's something that everybody should read. It was really insightful. Um, you know, it's really interesting coming from Ian Desmond, such an interesting guy and not a guy that's really been that outspoken. So I, I think if a number of things, first of all, it's a great reminder that these are human beings. These are human beings playing the game. And as much as we want to try to put everything into numbers and turn them into war and turn them into stats and, you know, what we expect them to do in the UZR and, and whatever numbers and metrics you want to put together, these are human beings. And, and I think it was really just exceptional the way he was able to share his thoughts, share his experiences and I think there were some people that might have been critical of him in terms of, hey, look, you're, you're a ball player. You've got an obligation to stay with your team. And look, when you, when you read the Instagram post, you will get an appreciation of what baseball has been and how important it has been a part of his life. Anybody that's had the experience of being dropped off at a, at a Little League tryout at age 10 and your, your stepfather never comes back to pick you up. And it, I mean, it's very moving. And it was very open. It was very honest. And yes, it was critiquing of baseball in many ways, but I think that's okay. I I think it would be naive to think that the issues that are going on in society are not also some of the same issues that are going on in Major League Baseball. And as people who love this game, I think we want to see it get better. And and I thought this was really insightful and honest uh, from a player's perspective, one that's 
unique, you know, one that I can never uh, speak to, but um, the, the way that he shared it and, and opened up our eyes, I think, and you know, I don't think anybody can criticize his decision at this point about what he wants to do as a man, as a husband, and as a father, and as somebody that still loves this game of baseball and wants to see it get better. So I, I, I thought it was exceptional. Yeah, I think that's a, a critical point you make there at the end scans about like we're, we're trying to, I think, as a society move past criticizing guys for making decisions like this. And we talked about it on the show yesterday when discussing Leak and Zimmerman and Ross and AJ. I don't think you have to go back too many years uh, to imagine a world in which uh, the reactions to this sort of thing could have been wildly different. Yeah, and in some reactions have been, but for the most part, I think the reactions have been supportive. And that's really important because, I mean, we are in the midst of a global pandemic and these are people's livelihoods and lives on the line. And, and I, for, for as much as people want to sit on their couch and, and in just enjoy maybe the, the, the game aspect of it, the, the hits, the runs, the, the outs, the innings, whatever, the numbers, it's not it's never been about that baseball's never been about that it's always been about people it's always been about the people involved and the people involved have issues that people have they may be baseball players who make a lot of money but they also live real lives and the situation we're in right now is a situation that they're also in trying to go back to work amid a amid a pandemic with serious health concerns and so uh i I have to say that we've probably progressed like you said as a society and that we're pretty accepting of these people and i I think it's personally pretty obvious that we should be supportive of personal decisions when they come down to health and when they come down to family and when they come down to the things that Ian Desmond described. Yeah. It's neat to see the different guys kind of coming from different places and uh, choosing how much or how little they want to say about it. That's obviously uh, completely up to them Uh, from a baseball perspective, of course, which is secondary in all of this, that does open up a spot in the outfield for the Colorado Rockies and they did not waste much time at all. Hey, 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 old friend, Uh, Matt Kemp, who you might remember once hit for the cycle at Coors Field, uh, has signed a minor league deal with the Rockies. He'll try and hook on with them over the course of this summer camp in the next few weeks. Uh, Kemp was with uh, the Marlins last year, uh, trying to keep his career going. And uh, Bob, hey, Coors Field has helped many guys uh, towards the tail end, you know, put up some number. That's not a bad landing spot for a guy like Matt Kemp. Hey, from the hitting side, it certainly is not. And obviously last year did not go very well for him in Cincinnati. He only played in 26 games, hurt the rib, got released. The Mets picked him up for the minor leagues for about eight games, and they released him as well. But the year before that, don't forget, with the Dodgers, 21 home runs and a 290 batting average. But the thing about Coors, as much as it's going to help his bat, he also has to cover a lot of the outfield, unless he's going to DH most of the time, which maybe that's what they've brought him on to do. Um, but also there's the recovery factor. At age 34, playing up there is going to take a toll. There's no question about it. But it could certainly help his bat. And if he can contribute in a short stretch, again, this is an older player, and we've seen him tail off. I mean, even that year with the Dodgers, he started off hot, and then he got tired in 60 games. Hey, he might be able to make a big impact for that ball club in a short period of time. AJ, your thoughts? Yeah, I think DH at Coors Field is probably the spot that just about any hitter in baseball wants to be. Like that's never been a job description before, and now it's like the ultimate job description if you're if you're a bat first player. Uh, I, I think I mean I, I don't know what to I don't know what to expect from a guy that we haven't seen play that a lot. I mean a lot of these guys have been off for three months, and who knows what kind of game shape they're in. And they haven't faced live pitching, and and Matt Kemp's obviously a little older and he's not the player that he was, but I mean, his ceiling was pretty elite and his bat is still to some extent somewhat there. And so, uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I just can't, I just keep getting my mind around 
a DH at Coors Field and what that means uh, for some runs that are going to be scored in games in Colorado and for some hitters at the end of their career, maybe. I mean, you can't have a more enticing offer than that. They'll, they'll, they'll be able to sign anybody they want for however many years the DH is in the National League <laughs> to fill that role. There will be guys lining up around, uh, what is it, Blake Street uh, in uh, Denver <laughs> trying to get in uh, and take that job. I'll tell you what, though, like if, if you were ever going to take a flyer on Matt Kemp in 2020, doing so, like we said, at Coors with the DH in a 60-game season, I get it. I, I fully get it. Like you said, you know, he doesn't need to last 100-whatever games or anything like that, as Scans mentioned. I mean – he, he could do damage. We'll see. But he could certainly do damage. Anyway, for the uh, for the Padres, as we said, made the trade today. Earlier today, they also uh, officially finalized the contract uh, with the only remaining unsigned draft pick, uh, third rounder Cole Wilcox, the right-hander out of the University of Georgia. Uh, electric stuff, a guy that a lot of people thought belonged earlier in the draft in terms of his stuff. There were some signability concerns. Padres maneuvered money, uh, as they generally do in the draft, to, to make this thing realistic and possible. They cashed in on it. Um, AJ, this seems so consistent with what we've seen out of AJ Preller the last couple of years in particular. Is, is your expectation and understanding that we will be seeing him at summer camp? Yeah, I think we'll be seeing him at summer camp, maybe not at the Petco Park edition. I know they're going to split it between two different venues, but he's. Uh, I, I, this is... This is pretty much the exact playbook that A.J. Preller used last season to sign Hudson Head. Uh, it's a shortened version of that playbook because the draft was shorter, but he essentially went all in on a third-round guy and maneuvered the rest of the draft to get upside guys who could sign below the, their slot value, and he had enough money. And I also think it's a credit to the Padres, who in a season that is obviously shortened by the pandemic, and I think there's a lot of financial concerns around baseball, the Padres not only spent to their limit, they spent 5% past their limit, which is basically as far as you could go without being without the potential of losing a draft pick in the future. And so they'll pay a little bit of overage on the Wilcox signing, but uh, it was important to them to kind of, even though it's a shortened season and a shortened draft to reload this system with guys like Robert Hassel and Cole Wilcox, who are both first round guys. And even their two second round uh, guys, uh, Justin Lang and uh, Owen Casey. I think a lot of people think they have upside that could have, could have maybe moved them toward the top of that round or into the first round. And so the Padres did pretty much, I think, the best they could do with a weird situation in the draft this season. And we, we will see if it pays off and we might get a chance to see it potentially paying off very soon at summer camp. Yeah. I, I'm fired up to see this kid a part of the organization. I, I've shared with you guys before that I, I've been hearing his name for the last couple of months. My godson had played at Georgia, talked about Cole and said, this guy is unbelievable. And, you know, he's really hoping to go in the first round. And But he was in a unique situation as a sophomore eligible draft guy because he was a red shirt you know, his first year. So he's got he's young. He's got a lot of uh, options ahead of him. And so he was in the driver's seat and in the ability to go back to school if he wanted to. And, and, and A.J., I want to sort of echo what you said in terms of a credit to the Padres organization for, I mean, everybody knew the talent was there, but having the confidence in your scouting department to not only know which guys you want to get, but also to have them slotted properly. You've got to under undersign these guys under their slots to be able to free up that money and have the confidence that you're going to be able to do that. It's a risky play. And that's one of the reasons that he fell down to the third round like he did. Most of the other organizations didn't have that confidence to be able to say, you know what? We're confident we can get these other guys signed with enough money left over 
to be able to take a chance on this kid. And especially with a shorter draft, you could not afford to miss, and the Padres didn't, and they're going to reap the benefits because <laughs> talk about deep talent. This kid's throwing up upper 90s to 100 miles an hour, learned a put-away slider last year, and has a changeup to go with it as well. So it's a great acquisition, and uh, congratulations to the Padres and to Cole. Padres have all the draft picks signed up, and they've continued to add on to that uh, hot lava talent that we've talked about for the last few years. There you go. Six for six. Six players drafted here in 2020, and the Padres have signed all of them. Uh, we, we've talked so much in the last uh, however many months, I guess, at this point about the things that would not be happening this year, the things we've been missing out on. And this was a very interesting piece of news that, that came out today, courtesy of John Morosi, uh, MLB Network and, and Fox Sports. And he said that the Field of Dreams game, you might not remember this, right? There was supposed to be a game in the cornfields. Uh, in Iowa, where they did Field of Dreams this summer. And, you know, I guess we sort of assumed a lot of us did, or I hadn't thought about it, that, you know, hey, they're going to cancel that like they've canceled everything else. Uh, not so fast, my friend, says John Morosi. Uh, and he reports that they are still going to try and pull off that game in the Iowa cornfield. The originally scheduled game probably not going to be the same game uh, because of the teams. Are, I forget now. I'm sorry. It might have been like Yankees, White Sox, whatever it was. It was two teams that were not going to play against one another now uh, because you're only playing, you know, East, East, Central, Central, and West, West. But obviously they can adjust who would be playing in that one, and you could go Cubs, Cardinals, White Sox, Cardinals, whatever, anything like that. Um, but Scans, this, this put a smile on my face today, like a, a glimmer of hope that we might still have something cool this year. Yeah, I think Major League Baseball is still trying to bring those fun moments. And this is not the first time they've done something like this. We saw them play at Williamsport a few years back in Fort Bragg. And so they're continuing at that theme of, hey, let's play Major League Baseball in some different venues. And this one is certainly iconic. Uh, what's interesting, though, you mentioned that it was going to be the Yankees and the White Sox. And indeed, the construction all along has been to make this field reminiscent of the old Comiskey ballpark. So hopefully the White Sox are still a part of this thing. White Sox fans especially would appreciate that. But it's unfortunate. The one thing that was going to be really cool about this is that fans, as they're entering the, the facility, were going to enter through the cornfields, which would have been really special. But of course, there won't be any fans, unfortunately, for this one, most likely. But hopefully they can still make the event happen and do it in a safe fashion. But um, it's going to be fun. And I think anything Major League Baseball does to try to bring these unique type moments to the shortened se season, the more the better. Yeah, I, I would add that it could be pretty cool. Whoever the teams are, it could be pretty cool that this game that's that's been scheduled, if it goes ahead as planned, and if say it's the White say it's the White Sox and the Twins, I don't know. I'm just making that up. Like it could mean a whole lot because the season's shortened, and we're watching this game in the cornfield, and and it has division implications, playoff implications, and so the people who are tuning in because of the novelty of it get to experience a baseball game that potentially means a whole lot. And so I, I think that's particularly cool. Uh, obviously, the whole thing is – I think the whole thing's great. Love that movie. Uh, I keep thinking back to that final scene, though, where all, there's all that traffic out there waiting to get in. I guess we're not going to get any of that. N none of those <laughs> lights of cars just trickling in. Yeah. Can we get James Earl Jones, though, somewhere in there? Oh, they'll, they'll have, I, I, I assure you, they'll be <laughs> the telecast in some way, shape, or form. You can't miss on that. Uh, you really can't. But yeah, that would be cool. And like you said, AJ, uh, you know, it could have just been a crappy late summer game between two teams out of it. And now it'll be two weeks before the trade deadline. And it'll be, you know, just six weeks into the season and all that. It'll be, it'll be pretty cool, I think, no matter what. So very glad to see that that is uh, at least still a possibility. Um, one of the other odd things that will be going on in 2020 will be umpire rotations and schedules. Uh, <laughs> hadn't thought much about this, 
a little look at Joe West. It's been a while, Cowboy. Nice to see you. Um, but it <laughs> obviously makes some sense for these guys' travel schedules to be a little bit different uh, in 2020 than it has been in the past, where, of course, uh, they would just bounce all over the place, literally, to work you know, one series, then another, and then another. Uh, but they're going to try and make it so they can uh, sometimes drive from one series to another. They're going to try and make it so if they work a giant series in San Francisco, perhaps their next series would be in Oakland. And maybe even at times they would work an entire homestand uh, at one place uh, so, you know, Padres versus Dodgers and Padres versus Giants, which you would have never seen. Uh, scans, uh, it's so simple, makes perfect sense to me. Uh, any on-field concerns whatsoever with that because it is a little bit different? Well, the only thing I would say, Jesse, is obviously the reason that they rotate the umpires around is so that there isn't a whole lot of animosity and acrimony building up, which can happen between players and umpires, right? And, and so, and these guys have history. So if, if we're going to have an umpire crew for an entire homestand and it's going to be, you know, extended games, I, I'm hoping that both sides understand, players and umpires, that whatever past history that you have, no matter how badly he squeezed you on that 3-2 pitch that cost you the win some, at some point, that you have to put all that stuff aside because the last thing we want to have during the shortened season is any kind of problems on the field between umpires and players. I don't think anybody wants to hear it. Let's just play baseball. Let's hopefully both sides can just put that aside. And, you know, when a player walks up there and he's had some history with an umpire, they can just look at each other and say, hey, you know what? We're playing baseball. Thanks be to God. And let's have some fun with it. <laughs> I, I tend to think that's the way it'll go. And I, I, I just have to think that all sides will. I mean, the, the, I, not every single time a manager goes out to argue or a player goes out to talk to the umpire, it's it's malicious. Sometimes they just want a clarification. Sometimes there needs to be something said. It's not always an argument or a shouting match. And so uh, there obviously need to be kind of details in place for how those could be handled. But I think all sides involved will will understand the situation at hand. And, and when there are calls that go one way or another or incidents involving an umpire, it always tends to die down because we don't see those umpires in the next series. And maybe it lingers a little bit this year. Maybe that, that storyline is something that, that we see somewhere. But like Scan said, I, I tend to fall on the side that all parties involved understand what's at stake here. And, and they are all going to be happy that there's baseball being played. Now, all that said, and I agree with both of you, I, I, I think that'll be the case. They're professionals and everybody recognizes the larger picture. But I tell you what, if there's a big game late September, Padres, Dodgers, you know, it's 100 degrees out. Everybody's in a bad mood. You know, there's only a game or two separating the two teams in the standings, playoff spot on the line, everything like that. And something goes really badly with the umpires. You might not get over that in a day or two. And it could be a situation. But I, I, I agree. Generally, I, I think it'll be just fine because hashtag 2020. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, the reason, of course, uh, that we're uh, we're dealing with all of this uh, insanity and difference and cautious uh, behavior uh, is because of the coronavirus. And there was some interesting information that came out today, courtesy of the Yankee general manager, Brian Cashman, about how uh, the COVID IL, as I guess we're calling it, is going to work. Um, so he said that it doesn't he doesn't believe they're going to have to or going to even be able uh, to tell the public that a player is on the COVID IL. Now, obviously, when a guy is a bum shoulder or hamstring, uh, he goes on the IL, we hear about it. And the reason, if you're talking about HIPAA stuff and medical privacy, that that's okay is because it's directly work-related. Um, that's not apparently the definition for COVID. Uh, and maybe this will get cleared up. Maybe this will change at some point between now and opening day. Um, but AJ, kind of an interesting thing right there because just from a practical standpoint, you know, if, if a big-name guy is not in the lineup one night, we're all going to wonder why, of course, and and perhaps we would find into a situation where we just kind of have to guess 
or, or something like that. As a reporter, how do you approach this whole thing? Yeah, it makes it difficult. And obviously my struggle to find out why guys aren't in the lineup isn't what's important, but I, but it, what it kind of, what, what should be interesting about it is if a guy's not in the lineup and we don't know why, well, what does that mean in terms of a positive test or in terms of maybe some exposure or just, just is the guy banged up and you want to keep the option open for other, for future guys who might have COVID to, to, to not be for it not to be so obvious for them. And you obviously really want to respect guys privacy with regards to this, because it is such a, it is such a critical health issue. And so, I mean, I, as a, as a reporter, I think I can empathize with humanity that if, if, if a player doesn't want to go into the details of what serious health issue he is dealing with at that moment, I don't feel really a need to press on that. And I think, I mean, there will probably be assumptions made this season. Some of them might end up being wrong when guys aren't in the lineup, and you just have to really kind of take a step back. And as we've been saying throughout this whole entire process since March and say, I don't know. I don't know. There's there's no definitive reason why the guy's not in the lineup, but here's the situation we're all dealing with, and here's what it potentially could be but isn't definitively. And so, yeah, it makes it makes the job a little trickier reporting on this, uh, but, I mean, for probably good reason if it's for personal privacy issues. Yeah, we, we go through this all the time, don't we? Trying to figure out what exactly is going on. And, and sometimes we know something is going on and we can't always share it because of a privacy issue. Um, and th this is, it's a tricky one because on the one hand, look, the CBA, as you mentioned, Jesse, does cover the fact that for public relations reasons, teams can give information about something that's work-related. A guy twisted his ankle on a certain player or whatever. We can talk about that. But the rest of it, there's a lot of other stuff that goes on that really is, is personal and we don't need to need to know about. Well, what is interesting about this one is that in the past, whenever there's been an injury and we're trying to figure things out, what's the biggest ramification? Well, they're going to have to call it the second baseman from AAA to replace this guy, whereas this can actually affect the outcome of a season dramatically in terms of if the guy ends up having COVID, it could have, how many other people could possibly get it? How does this affect an entire roster? How does this affect the, the outcome of a season that's only 60 games? So, look, I think it's still being debated. The Players Association has always wanted to protect their players' rights, understandably, and we'll see how this one plays out. Yeah. So obviously, again, that cloud is out there and you got to be aware of it. Kind of an interesting little uh, aspect of it from a, a journalistic and reporting standpoint. Uh, bad news today out of the world of minor league baseball. And it wasn't any kind of surprise whatsoever, but it did become official uh, that there would be no minor league season in 2020. Uh, Bob, we could probably do an entire hour uh, just talking about reasons why this bums us out. Um, and again, not a surprise with everything going on. It was going to be near impossible. Uh, but, you know, the uh, Pat O'Connor is the president and CEO of minor league baseball. Uh, one of the comments he made today on a conference call with the media was that minor league baseball is in dire straits. Obviously, things weren't going great uh, even before the pandemic. And that has taken things from tough to very, very, very difficult. Um, this again, to me, as a fan, as someone who grew up going to minor league games, who had his love of the sport fostered by going to those games. It just makes me sad. Yeah, I'm heartbroken by this. And to your point, it, it's no surprise. We sort of knew this was gonna happen. There was really no way to avoid it. And at the same time, I just, my heart goes out to all the young players who this was gonna be their only chance to put on a professional uniform and be able to tell their family for the rest of their lives. You know, I, I played professionally. You know, even if it's at the minor league level, there's still there's a great sense of pride in terms of something that you've accomplished. You've worked your entire childhood. You know, this is your dream as a little leaguer. Obviously, to get to the big leagues, that's the ultimate goal. But even to be able to, for one day, 
put on a uniform and say, I'm a professional baseball player at any level is something special. And, it, and it's great for the fans to be a part of that as well. Um, these minor league teams are a huge influence in the communities of a lot of these cities. And, and it's not just the, the lack of opportunity for some of these players, but you know, for, for the development of the players that are going to get a second and third chance to continue to play. It's going to cost them in terms of their development time and also from a public relations standpoint, this hurts baseball. There's no question about it. We want as many people enjoying the game at every single level as we possibly can. And unfortunately, we're going to miss out all on that, AJ. So uh, I, I'm bummed. I don't know about you. Yeah, we're going to miss out on all that. And lots of people in lots of cities that have deep, deep relationships with these baseball teams are going to miss out on it. I look at it kind of through two different lenses. Uh, the first one, obviously, just being saddened kind of by the whole thing, understanding it, but but saddened because, I mean, on top of the players who get an opportunity to play with pro- professional baseball, I mean, all three of us got our start in the minor leagues, essentially. I covered the Altoona Curve in their 2010 Eastern League Championship season, and that's how I started covering baseball. And that kind of propelled me to where I am. And there's a lot of jobs throughout the minor leagues, whether it's working at the ballpark or working in the organization or broadcasters or whatnot, that are really affected by all this. And so that on, on that front, that's, it, just, I mean, it, it just sucks. That's, that's all you can say about it. On the development side of things, that, that's a much maybe a much less pressing issue, but... In terms of how are these guys going to progress? How do you get guys who could potentially be a valuable part of your organization? I'm kind of fascinated by what happens this season. The onus is on a lot of those guys to go ahead and try and develop kind of on their own. In the Padres case, they obviously took their top 13 prospects per MLB pipeline to summer camp. And so some of them will be able to to develop here, but not necessarily playing games while training against certifiable big leaguers or fringe big leaguers who are, who are on an alternate training site. And so, uh, yeah, there's kind of two aspects to it. I think one is just the, the sad, unfortunate nature of the fact that there will be no minor league baseball. And two is what that means for the guys who really use minor league baseball to kind of springboard major league success and build a major league roster. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the economics, I think, are pretty well known to most baseball fans at this point in terms of the players. Uh, and that goes for the staffs, you know, at these places, too. So, you know, certainly on a personal note, we all know a lot of folks uh, who work around minor league baseball players and otherwise. And uh, thinking about all you guys here tonight, because uh, it's uh, it's been a difficult year for a billion reasons. And now you can just add this one on top. There will officially now uh, be no minor league season here in 2020. Uh, as as we move on from that, AJ, I think perhaps just from my own uh, reading, you've been about as busy this week as you have at any point in the last uh, couple of months. And that's obviously a very good thing. Uh, you had a mailbag. And, and I want to dive into one topic that came up. Always enjoy the mailbag about the rotation and, and just sort of the plans for the Padres. And this relates to five man and six man. It relates to the possibility of Goran Patino being a part of the mix. Let me sort of expand the question to, to both you guys about what you think pitching will look like, particularly early on when obviously the arms might not be built all the way up. What are you thinking? I think it'll look different not just early on throughout the season because games mean a little bit more. And so it's not going to be full on playoff mode all season. You're not going to be going to your bullpen in the third inning. If a guy gets to second base and you're losing by a run, but the game, there's going to be extra urgency. And especially with a team like the Padres that has such a deep bullpen, it has three or four different arms. who can go multiple innings out of that bullpen. I would expect them to use it more than you would expect. Maybe in the fifth inning, maybe a little early, uh, obviously, there's no DH and or there's no pitcher hitting, so you don't have to really maneuver with that. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm kind of fascinated by it all in terms of the five man and six man. That's an interesting question. I would 
assume that it will be somewhat contingent upon the schedule. And if the Padres have a bunch of games in a row, maybe that's the time to throw a Mackenzie Gore start in there or a Luis Patino start in there if, if they've kind of proven themselves ready for that. But I think the Padres probably aren't leaning in the direction of those minor leaguers right now. Things could change. You never know who with, with injuries, illness, whatnot. This year is going to be weird. It's going to be different. But I, I, in terms of how many guys are in a rotation, I would, I would wait and see a schedule and try and maybe understand it better. Uh, I think there is definitely a place, even if Mackenzie Gore and Luis Patino aren't on the opening day roster, for them to pitch meaningful innings in 2020. I'm just really not entirely sure what it looks like because we have never seen a season unfold like this before. I would agree with you, AJ. I think this is a really fluid situation, and there's certainly arguments to be made of why you would incorporate a six-man rotation. And what's nice is that, again, we talked about the depth of the Padres' bullpen. They have depth in the rotation as well. When you've got guys like Gore and Patino that are knocking on the door and waiting to be dominant guys, you know, these aren't just, you know, hopefully fourth and fifth uh, spot rotation guys. These are top of the rotation guys that the Padres are going to get a chance to take a look at and, and help develop this year. So, I, I'm really curious to see how this plays out for some of the, the veteran guys, you know, the Chris Paddocks and, and the Padres have, have always stated, look, we're not trying to develop five inning guys. We want starters that can go in deep into the ball game. Yeah, we have a deep bullpen and that's fine, but they're not trying to develop guys that are just going to be five or six inning pitchers. So I think we're going to get the guys that can go deep in the games. will still get opportunities to do that. But AJ and Jesse, you've seen this before. There's managers at times, because it's a longer season, they will try to massage certain starters and say, look, I need to get more out of this guy over the course of the season, and I need to find out if he can get into the sixth inning. I need to find out if this is a guy that can, you know, take some pressure off the bullpen on a certain night. I don't think they're going to do that experimenting this year. I think there's too much on the line, too fast, and you know, next year you'll get that opportunity. But this year, if you're a five-inning guy, you're a five-inning guy, and you're going to get the hook a lot sooner. But the big boys will still get a chance to go deep in the game. At least that's my hope. That's that's a really good point. The other thing I've been thinking about, and I might have mentioned, I might not on the show, is that when the playoffs do roll around, I mean, AJ, you're going to have top-line, big-time, ace-type guys who are extraordinarily fresh in October, much more so than they would be in another year. And that could really, I think, have a big impact on the playoff games. Oh, yeah. I I, I like to look at kind of some of the best 60-game stretches, and a lot of them are like in that July-August time frame when it – I mean – that's around 70 or 80 games into the season when guys like, I think, Jake Arrieta, Zach Granke in recent years, Clayton Kershaw before them, like that's when guys, re- when those like Cy Young, real certifiable frontline aces established themselves as like the top of the line Cy Young candidates. And so maybe we get to October and, and who knows, maybe, maybe the guy can go on three days rest. Maybe the guy can go on three days rest a couple times in a row and just won't be impacted like he would be after pitching 220 innings during a regular season. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. And I, I think it's just one of probably the many things that as the season progresses, we'll realize, huh, this is going to be a little bit different this year and maybe not for the worse. Maybe it could be, could make things interesting. Yeah. We'll see. I I love the fact that, yeah, that whole point about guys are going to be fresh for the playoffs. That's the most exciting part of this thing for me. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be fun watching the intensity of 60 games, but the quality of baseball that we might see in the postseason this year, it might be unprecedented because guys are going to be hitting their stride. They're going to be fresh. It's not going to be Scherzer with 270 innings under his belt or whatever it is. And, you know, having made it through July and August in Washington, you're going to get these guys at their prime fresh, ready to go. And it, it could be really fun. 
We've seen two postseason no hitters in history. Maybe we'll see like two more this year just because of uh, <laughs> how crazy everything is. All right, got a couple of questions coming in uh, from the uh, FAQ department here and, and trying to address these as regularly as we can because I know people are in and out. Uh, 19-6-21, we do not know what opening day is, but we do know it'll be either the 23rd or the 24th. Uh, that's what the reports have indicated, uh, is that there will be two games on July 23rd. I would guess an East Coast game and a West Coast game. Uh, Big-time markets uh, being involved would be a good guess. And then everybody else will open up on the 24th. So you're, you're just three-plus weeks away from opening day one way or the other. Uh, Brian follows up with, are we playing other teams uh, during spring training 2.0? You have the option of playing other teams. We don't even have the schedule yet for the regular season. Um, so that that plays in here because MLB has said, hey, if you want, you can play a team that's either geographically nearby up to three games. So two or three games max um, for spring training, or you can play a couple of exhibitions against the team that you're going to face in that opening series. So all that stuff still very uh, TBD, not TBA, TBD, like they got to figure it out. It's it's not just that we're waiting for some kind of announcement here. Uh, we're just trying to get all the all the facts together. Um, along those lines, a, a lot of the questions we've been seeing lately um, is another thing AJ wrote about today in terms of the way this summer camp is going to work with the Padres having two sites, one at Petco and one at USD. AJ, this was a really informative uh, story that that I enjoyed tremendously. Everybody should read it, but if you don't mind, some some cliffs notes here, some some high uh, high end takeaways from the thing. Yeah, I, I can't believe I wrote that today. I've been writing so much. There's been so much going on. It feels like a normal work day. It's it's great in some in some <laughs> respects. But yeah, so I guess the question for me was like, usually when the Padres train for a season, they're training in Peoria, Arizona, where they have eight fields and and two sets of bullpen mounds with six or seven mounds on each, and they have all they have all this space and all these batting cages all these infields, half infields, it just is so easy for them to get ready for a season. So how do they go about doing that now? Well, we know they're splitting sites between USD and San Diego. And so I get their USD and Petco Park. And so for me, the biggest takeaways uh, from what I learned today are that the pitchers who are not throwing bullpen sessions, the pitchers who are just there to, to play catch, to keep their arm fresh and to go through their running program, they will be at the university of San Diego doing their work out there. The pitchers who are throwing either bullpens or facing live hitters. Those are the ones that'll be at Petco park. So immediately you cut that group down by a, a decent chunk of people. Then all pretty much all the prospects who you w- wouldn't really have an have any expectation for them to be on the regular season roster, those guys will also be training at USD. And so from my math, you've pretty much lowered it down to maybe 20 or so position players and then a handful of pitchers. Uh, even then, there are logistical challenges. There's only four bullpen mounds. There's only one field. And so you're going you're gonna to have guys coming in early, I think, for infield practice or outfield work. Then there's going to be a, a thorough disinfectant during the daytime before the real workout starts, I think probably in the early afternoon. And that will entail team defense and team batting practice uh, and and potentially very soon intra-squad games. And you're going to be getting a lot of intra-squad games because, as you just mentioned, the Padres aren't going to be playing other teams. There's not, there's not 14 other teams in the area that they can just play against like normal spring training. And so uh, some of these could be pretty fiery and pretty exciting seeing Chris Paddock go up against Fernando Tatis in what's supposed to be live game action. Um, yeah, so I think those are the details, obviously two batting cages. They'll be using both the home and the visitors, uh, and some obstacles with regards to social distancing too, in terms of where the clubhouses are going to be. So there's just a lot that goes into the logistical challenges of this. I mean, for a first year manager, Jace Tingler appears to have handled it pretty well in terms of just 
setting things up logistically and making sure his guys can be fresh and guys can be can be ready for the season. AJ, thanks for doing this article. I learned so much from it. I, I had so many questions and you answered so many of them. And I, I think the one thing that stood out to me as well is that the encouragement that I have that these guys are ready. There's so many of the pitchers that actually feel like they are ready to face hitters right away. So it's a good sign that guys have been keeping themselves in shape and they're ready to go. So they'll make the most out of this time, which of course will reduce the uh, possibility of injuries as guys are trying to ramp things up to get ready for the start of the season. Scans, it, it, my, my gut tells me it'll feel a little bit more normal for pitchers than it will for position players uh, because they'll have their throw days, they'll throw off a bullpen, uh, and then, you know, the other days they'll just sort of do whatever it is that, you know, they're doing in terms of, uh, you know, fitness work and all that. Does, does that sound right to you or am I oversimplifying what you guys do as pitchers? Jesse, if you're suggesting that we spend a lot of time chewing gum and spitting seeds while we're shagging in the outfield, you're right. <laughs> we do. And it sounds like pitchers are going to be doing a lot of that, which is fine. You're absolutely right. I mean, we, we're sort of on a routine as a starter. You, you know, you, you do your, your your live action, then you take a day off, you throw your bullpen, um, that the relievers will be a little bit more of a day on, day off type thing. But yeah, to, to your point, uh, it, it'll be easier on the pitchers, I think, than, than the position players who are still going to have to get their their legs and their feet underneath them. Yes, they've been working out, but no matter no matter what, no matter what you do, players will always tell you this: there is no substitute for actually standing on a field in your spikes for hours and, and getting your legs back underneath you and getting your feet used to it again and getting the movements and getting the reactions down. Of yeah, I can take balls off a of fungo as many times as I want, but actually having it come off live off a of bat on a fastball in his hands versus a slider off the end of the bat, you know, the, the little things, which it'll come back to guys, but that's the part that the position players are really going to have to try to focus on. It's the small things that you can only duplicate by actually being in game type situations. Like uh, so much else, it'll be absolutely fascinating. Good question from Ahi in terms of uh, what kind of coverage there's going to be. Now, Ahi, I, I don't know for certain the answer to your question. However, I can tell you, uh, that the uh, Padres social media team, headed up by Nikki, uh, who's behind the scenes on this show as well, they don't miss a thing, man, and you probably know that by now. I know you're around a lot. So I would expect uh, tremendous coverage on social media from the Padres, certainly. Um, so I, I wouldn't worry about that. I, I put that team up against any team in all of baseball. Uh, what do we got next? Oh, we got this. This is a fun one. June 30th, right? We talk about, oh, we're halfway through the year, everything like that. June 30th, also a very good day in Padre history. Uh, because on this date, June thirtieth, in uh, what 20... 2016. Well, 2016? Was it sixty? Was it that yep. long? Sixteen. Yeah, my first yep. season on the beat. Yep. Wow, I didn't realize it had been that long. Uh, Padres send Fernando Rodney and his uh, bow, his arrows, his quiver, all of it uh, to the Miami Marlins, <laughs> uh, and they got back a prospect out of Texas uh, named Chris Paddock. Right-hander. So far, AJ, that has a that has looked like a win for the Padres in terms of the trade. That might not even be the most lopsided deal that month, and it's one of the most lopsided trades probably of the past decade. That's also I'm, I'm referring to Fernando Tatis for James Shields, but I think this is probably the back end of that that three or four week stretch in 2016 where the Padres really committed to this. To, to this rebooting of the farm system, just went all in with guys like Paddock, Tatis, that draft. You had Quantrill, Lucchese, Lauer, and then the international signings right around then too. Anderson Espin or uh, Adrian Morihone and and a number of other guys there. It's just a, such a critical four-week stretch in the Padres' history while the product on the field at that time, frankly, wasn't very good. And and this trade in particular, I mean, there was it, – it, it didn't look – 
great necessarily at the time, given that, that Chris Paddock went through Tommy John surgery and he had such a long road to recovery. But I think as soon as he got back out there and started posting those insane numbers in, in high A and then in double A, you just kind of knew that this was going to be one that, that the Padres would be happy about and the Marlins would probably regret for a long time. Yeah, this goes in the Marlins record books as one that hurt. But you can't blame them at the time. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You look back at 2016, it wasn't that long ago. But when you look at the Marlins roster, they still had Christian Yelich. They still had Jim Carl Stanton. They still had Real Muto. They still had Ozuna. I mean, that was a team that had yeah. some players. And they were in online to be the wild card uh, winner at that point. And they felt like, look, we got to strengthen up our pitching. And they, they went out and got Fernando Rodney to try to do that, who was mowing for the Padres at that point. He had the 0.3 run earn run average and the 17 saves that he had locked up. And, you know, a couple of things. First of all, I know we talk about the amateur scouting department and what an amazing job they have done in terms of building this organization with the young talent, but also let's not forget what the pro department has done in terms of signing guys like Fernando Rodney, who the year before had a 4.41 earn run average. They signed him up for $2 million and that year trade him off to get a Chris Paddock quality talent. I mean, that that's your pro department. Those are the guys that know what's going on in the minor leagues. Those are the guys that are looking at the free agents, you know, which ones are worth signing, which ones are guys that can actually make a rebound and we might be able to get something for them. They did the same thing with Drew Pomeranz. Um, so it, it, it's fascinating. And also going back to the trades, I love that, AJ, that you mentioned that a month before that they'd gotten Fernando Tatis Jr. for James Shields. And then a month after that, they trade Andrew Kashmir over to the Marlins as well to pick up Josh Naylor. So a pretty good year of trades for the Padres overall. Yeah, I'll just reiterate what Bob said about Fernando Rodney. He was an all-star for the Padres that year. I think technically, I guess he ended up being an all-star for the Marlins because of the trade, but he was unhittable. Um, it was so much fun watching him. He was launching arrows all over the National League. Like he said, uh, I think a 0.31 ERA and 28 appearances uh, before the trade. And then he goes to Miami and his ERA is, is approaching six uh, during his time with the Fish. Incredible. I like Fernando. I liked watching him pitch. Awesome. I liked having him around. He was a fun guy. And uh, boy, does that trade look really, really, really good in hindsight. <laughs> Obviously, uh, Chris Paddock is here. So that was this date in 2016. Now, uh, our KBO sadness report. Uh, there's actually some sadness and some gladness here. Uh, the sadness involves our team, uh, KT Wiz. Uh, the heartbreaker last night, really. They fought back. They tied the game in the late innings uh, against LG Twins on the road. Uh, and then ended up losing in 11, so walk-off defeat. But the 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 happiness, the gladness coming out of the KBO is that it sounds like uh, they're going to continue to try and push forward here for their plan that fans would be allowed in, at least some of them, on Friday uh, and moving forward. Now, these precautions I thought were really kind of fascinating uh, because, again, in a country that's handled the coronavirus about as well as any place on the planet, you see sort of the, the health and safety manual, the guide here for fans. Uh, they have to wear masks. I think that's probably obvious at this point and have at least one seat between each person, even if it's your family who you've been living with. Uh, they, they don't want anybody sitting next to each other. You will not be able to eat from your seat. You will not be able to bring in outside food, which normally you'd be able to. Water is the only beverage that will be allowed. Uh, they're going to try and discourage people from bringing young kids to the games out of safety concerns. I mean, this is some pretty heavy stuff when you consider it. Um, they're going to do very limited chanted, uh, chanting and singing, which is a huge part of the baseball culture there, uh, because obviously uh, the louder you speak or sing, the more droplets. We all know, unfortunately, the science by now. Box office going to be closed. Anyway, my, my main takeaway from all this, scans, reading all this, was like, 
this this is not being done with finances front and center. Um, you know, they're, they're not out there trying to sell beer like Jim Crane of the Astros said uh, this past <laughs> week. They're trying to get people in and, and, and really seems like make it as safe as possible. Yeah, that's a great point. This isn't a money grab. This is just to try to get people back enjoying the sport. And I love the fact that they're trying to be proactive about it and put some things in place to try to keep everybody safe because they want to have a positive experience with this. And the better experience that they can have introducing it, the better chance that Major League Baseball might be able to see something that maybe they can open the door at some point, open up the turnstiles, so to speak, and and have fans some way, somehow back in Major League Stadium's uh, faster, I think, than any of us are anticipating at this point. But AJ, I, I, I'm glad to see them trying to do this experiment. And I'm hoping that it goes well. Yeah, I'm glad to see them doing, looking to do the experiment. And I'm glad to see them really taking the precautions seriously and really kind of figuring out what might work and what, what we need to do to make sure that it's safe for everyone involved. The, the profit is not the first concern. The first concern is making sure that the people that get to come to the games are safe. And it seems like that's the case. And who knows, maybe, maybe if, if, if this country can kind of get going in a different direction than where it's headed right now, maybe this is something that we can look forward to toward the end of this baseball season. But um, it's, it, it is encouraging to kind of see a path toward that, at least in, in the KBO. All right. Plenty of heaviness, obviously that we've been discussing on the show. We're going to end on a lighter note. Uh, what I think is one of the great lost arts of baseball and scans. I was so excited that you were on the show today uh, because you were there perhaps for like the, the golden age of the hot foot. There was a great story in the athletic today. Everybody should check it out about the hot foot. And for those of you who are too young uh, or, or just unaware of the hot foot, basically they would light a guy's shoe on fire in the dugout um, scans. Uh, I, I, I immediately thought to myself, I bet Bob has some great hot foot stories. You know, I'm, I'm glad that I was never the victim of a hot foot, Jesse, but I certainly was a participant in, in several hot feet. And this is something that it was, you know, even down in the minor leagues, I'd never experienced it at high school, right? So I'm a 17-year-old kid. I'm in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And all of a sudden, I look over and there's a flame on the foot of the guy next to me. I'm like, what is this? And I came to learn that this is part of the, the baseball culture. Um, and there's a lot of different techniques for being able to pull it off. There's the just put the rubbing alcohol directly on the shoe and light it on fire. There's the create a device strategy where you actually put a bunch of matches together and create almost like a time bomb that you stick on the back of the shoe. So, you know, guys take quite pr- quite a lot of pride in this. And, uh, and it can go haywire, though. It's not always all fun and games. We actually did see one one of my teammates where his socks caught on fire. And the next thing you know, we were actually taking towels and throwing water on it, trying to put it out so the whole dugout didn't catch on fire. So, uh, but, but it is one of those fun things. And it was a great story hearing about uh, Billy Martin and, and Mosley actually getting in a fight over one of these many years ago. <laughs> I got to read that. I'm, I'm a little behind because of everything that's been happening today, but that, that uh, Scott Van Slyke one, uh, I, I'm sure the video's out there somewhere. Vin Scully gives basically the play-by-play of it, and it's yeah. just fantastic. And if Vin Scully calling a hot foot, like if, if you love baseball, that's like that's pretty much as good as it gets if, you, if you're into just kind of the lore and, and the, the beauty of baseball. Adrian very involved. Unfortunately, they had a lot of trouble with this one. They eventually got it, as you see, but it was not like I'd give it like a C minus in terms of you'll see. Go watch the video, like AJ said, because Scully doing play by play in a blowout of uh, of, a, of a guy getting a hot foot is outstanding. I mean, it's just remarkable. Um, 
you know, when, when I was growing up, I, I was a Met fan. I've talked about that. And they were like those nut jobs in the mid 80s Mets. They were kind of notorious for this. And there's a phenomenal piece of video that I didn't want to put on the show because it's really a don't try this at home kind of thing. But it was part of like the 86 Mets highlight video that I watched and rewatched a billion times on VHS as a kid. And it's Roger McDowell, who's kind of King Hotfoot and, and Howard Johnson, Hojo sitting there and they're literally showing you how to do it. Like it's like a Mr. Science segment or something like that. It's on YouTube. And again, if you're up age, uh, go check that out. But it's absolutely hilarious. They got their different, you know, oh, I roll my gum like this. I stick my gum on like this, you know, to make it sticky. Uh, but but scans, you, you don't see them quite as much anymore. Maybe that's a good thing. Uh, but, but what a little wonderful piece of baseball history. Yeah, it was. And it was interesting. I, I'm so glad you, you brought the article up and it was fascinating. AJ, you got to read it. it. It's great. I mean, it's about this fight that goes on between Boswell and Martin and it, it all goes back to a hot foot that supposedly started the whole thing. But to your point, Jesse, I, you know, I'm in the dugout almost for 162 games and I'm trying to think if I've seen any in the last few years and I, and I can't remember any. So I don't know, maybe it's a lost start. I'm hoping that it hasn't been completely lost because it still brings some some joy and some laughter into the dugout over the course of the season. But uh, I don't know, especially this year, social distancing. I don't think we're going to see many, many this season, unfortunately. Yeah, that's probably good. That's probably everything is safety first in <laughs> 2020. Everything is safety first. Uh, yeah. Season. All right, coming up at 7 o'clock on Fox Sports San Diego. Uh, get to watch a Padre Classic. Don't have to go too far back in the vault for this one. Uh, Sunday afternoon late last season, and uh, Padres looking for a hero late in the game. They would find one in the person of Seth Mejias Green. Uh, SMB walks it off for the Padres against the Diamondbacks. Um, we've talked about it endless times, guys. I'm such a sucker for stories like Seth Mejia Spreen. All those years in the minor leagues finally gets an opportunity, and then uh, he, he makes good in a big way in this particular game against the Diamondbacks. So, again, that is coming up at 7 on Fox Sports San Diego. Uh, Bob, AJ, as always, a, a true pleasure having you aboard, and I uh, hope you guys – uh, I don't know, like I get to see at the ballpark at some point, even if it's from 25 feet away through some plexiglass. <laughs> it's been great as always, Jesse. Thanks, AJ. And yeah, we're closer to having real baseball, guys. Can't wait. Yeah, I'll, I'll see you from a distance at the ballpark. And that's uh, that's as good as we can ask for in 2020. And just a reminder, speaking of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. I was waiting to ask if you were going to say anything. Go ahead. No, take your victory lap. It's fine. Well, one one drought has ended this season this year Liverpool going 30 years without winning a English premier league. Maybe the Padres will snap theirs in 2020. Maybe let's, let's tie those two together. Works for me. You know what, if that's what it takes, if it takes Liverpool winning the league for the first time in a, in a generation to get the Padres uh, a world series trophy, I'm all in, I'm all in. Thanks everybody for hanging out and uh, having a good time as said uh, scans and Casavell as well. We'll be back tomorrow at five 30 and who knows what we'll learn between now and then. Busy day today. Hopefully more good news tomorrow. Stay safe, everybody. Have a good night. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. 
Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.